Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Today on Policy Forum Pod, we're talking about a topic that is confronting and painful. It is difficult to talk about, but it is essential to talk about. Violence against women is an ongoing crisis globally. The United Nations Secretary General's Unite campaign aims to end violence against women around the world by 2030. Sustainable Development Goal 5 aims to achieve gender equality and empower women and girls. The second target of that goal aims to eliminate all forms of violence against women and girls in public and private spheres. Around the world, the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in an increase in violence against women, especially domestic, family and intimate partner violence. UN Women estimates for every three months of lockdown, an additional 15 million women are expected to be affected by violence. That is staggering and it is shocking. The global cost of violence against women is estimated at approximately 2% of global gross domestic product or about US $1.5 trillion. But of course, as we have discussed many, many times on this pod, GDP is an imprecise and poor measure of many things. And the human cost of violence is immeasurable. The fear and the trauma of being locked down with an abuser is horrifying. Australia has been a global leader in seeking to address violence against women, but we also have shockingly high rates of violence. On average, one woman is murdered every week in this country by a current or a former partner. Almost 10 women a day are hospitalised for assault injuries perpetrated by a spouse or a domestic partner. And while the figures for domestic and intimate partner violence are horrifying, so too are those for public violence. Almost one in 10 women have experienced violence by a stranger since the age of 15, and almost a third of women have experienced physical or sexual violence by that age. Today on Policy Forum Pod, we are talking through Australia's efforts to end violence against women and their children, how far we've come and how far we have to go. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net here at the Crawford School of Public Policy which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Do go to our website and check out the range of degree programs and short courses that we have on offer. You can go to crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. 
Now, the topic that we are talking about today is a difficult one. And if this, this discussion raises any issues for you, we've included the details of support services in the show notes, which you can find on our website. As regular listeners will know, we are in lockdown in the ACT right now, which means that we're using our home setups rather than our usual studio space. We're working as hard as we can to make the audio as high quality as possible, but we do apologise if it's not the same standard that you are used to. For our regular listeners, you know me, I'm Sharon Bessel, I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. I am particularly struggling with my audio at the moment, so forgive me, and I am here again with Greta Hunter. Hi, Greta. It's great to see you again. It's nice to be on the same virtual space. I'm Greta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Um, and I should warn listeners, there's a small chance of random chicken noises coming from my garden outside. So it is certainly a challenge recording at home. It can be more entertaining sometimes. Yeah, indeed. It's always a surprise when we're recording at home as to just what ends up in the background. Um, but Greta, as I said, this, this is such an important topic we are talking about today, and we have an outstanding guest guests to join to join us. Would you like to do the honours? We do. I think this today's conversation is a really important one and I can't tell you how pleased I am to introduce our guest for today. We've got Patty Kinnersley with us today. Patty is CEO of Our Watch, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. She joined Our Watch in 2015 as the Director of Practice Leadership before becoming the CEO. And she has previous experience across a range of women's organisations, including the Women's Health Grampians, Ballarat Health Services and Women's Health Association of Victoria. In addition to her role at Our Watch, Patty is also the, de- the Director of the Carlton Football Club and the Non-Executive Director and Astra- Secretary of the Australian Women's Health Network National Board. Patty, it's so good to have you with us today. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you very much for having me and I'll start by um, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where I'm coming from, the Jajawarong people in the Central Highlands of Victoria and in my background right at the moment it's just started snowing. <laughs> That's fabulous. What a great way to start. Let's remember where we are. Um, we're, Sharon and I are both on Ngunnawal country and we do start the show with an acknowledgement of country. Uh, it's always important to frame this by recognising where our country has come from and where we might go in our future. Patty, let's start today's conversation by talking about the work that Our Watch has done on changing the story. Change the Story is a shared framework for primary prevention of violence against women and their children in Australia. It was developed by Our Watch, the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation and Australia's National Research Organisation for Women's Safety. Change the Story identifies specific gendered drivers of violence. Maybe you could start today's conversation, Patty, by telling us what Change the Story is and what are those drivers of violence that the project would like to see change? Yeah, wonderful. So we're quite fortunate in Australia that we have a national plan to prevent violence against women and their children. And the first plan is 10 years old. It's about to come to an end, actually. And that plan has uh, four action plans. And in the second action plan, it was identified that there wasn't an organisation with a national focus on preventing violence against women and their children. That acknowledgement that uh, that will, unless we do something to change the conditions, uh, the that we would still be here in 30 years with the same rates or increased rates of violence. And it's it's got a really strong logical element to it. We need to find out what's driving violence and then take action to address it. So the first thing that our watch um, 
our watch was formed or emerged out of that second national plan. And the first thing we needed to do was to make sure that we had a strong evidence base. And I think it's fair to say that for decades, uh, feminists and women's organisations and others had always um, had a strong opinion that uh, gender inequality was the key driver of violence against women. But we did a, a piece of work in partnership with Anne Rose and Vic Health to look at the international and national evidence, um, all of the work that had been done to, to um, come up with a really strong evidence base. And that document is called Change the Story. Uh, Change the Story uh, brings together the evidence, it outlines what the drivers of violence are, but it also talks about actions to prevent violence and gives everybody a role. So it sets a really strong context for um, the socioeconomic model really about what gov- what is government's role, what are individuals' role, what is the, what are the community's role and so forth. So in Change the Story, um, we're able to say that, yes, gender inequality is the key driver of violence against women, but there are particular expressions of gender inequality that are more likely to set an environment or to develop a, a context where violence is more likely to occur. And they are the condoning of violence against women or the trivialising of it, so the jokes about violence against women or he was stressed or what did she expect going for a run in the dark, those things that dismiss or trivialise violence. Men's control of decision-making and limits to women's independence. So that really the patriarchal model we're in where still really men are making most of the decisions on behalf of the whole community. And we we see that playing out in terms of uh, things like women on boards or women in senior executive roles, but also women in part-time employment and um, less likely to have senior roles or, you know, in a a really awful way, or we see it in the gender pay gap. We also see it in the fact that women are the fastest growing group, women over 50 are the fastest growing group moving into homelessness and poverty, which I think is a real indictment on our community. Uh, Thirdly, the stereotype constructs of masculinity and femininity. And this is not masculinity and femininity being bad or good per se. It's about the rigid version of masculinity in particular that say that what is normal in terms of masculinity is to be tough, stoic, be in charge, be in control. Um, and it's and with the evidence, recent evidence about men who adhere to that version of masculinity are also more likely to uh, perpetrate violence against women. But it also is that thinking about, well, men should be the boss and women are not. Women should be at home. So that it's the rigid version of stereotypes that are problematic and disrespect towards women in male peer relations, particularly where using women as the butt of the joke or the way um, the way for men to form bonds and so forth is actually how they communicate or the lack of willingness for men to challenge each other. So we say that those things working together across the places we spend our time, so in our workplaces, in our sporting organisations, in our interaction with the media, um, in our education settings, that those things working together create an environment where um, women are not valued as equal and that that sets the environment for viol- where violence is more likely to occur. It's such a powerful model, I think, and I've spent some time looking at some of the media that's out around this and I highly recommend that listeners spend some time on your website. And I think you've probably answered part of this question, but uh, Patty, where does responsibility sit for changing those gendered uh, those gendered drivers of violence? It strikes me that your model really offers all of us a role in it, in addressing this. But but where should we be focusing our attention? Yes, you're quite you're quite right. And and one of the things I do love about Change the Story is it does locate the responsibility 
with everybody because we know that through history there's been a really strong narrative around either it belongs behind closed doors between a man and a woman and it's not my business or it doesn't happen in my in my circle so it's not my business or I, I don't know I'm a good person I wouldn't do that or we say this is government's job to fix now neither of those things are completely true of course we we do um governments do have a huge role we know they set the authorizing environment we know that they uh, put policies in place we know they set the systems and structures and so forth and they create fund provide funding so they have a huge role local governments state governments and commonwealth government but it is also the responsibility of people in any role of influence so if you're a ceo of an organization is your organization one of equality and respect if you're in a sporting organisation, is it safe and welcoming for women? Do you Are you representing women? In our education settings, are we creating an environment where we're not only talking to young people about healthy relationships, but that's also being modelled through the organisation? In our media, is our media representing women in a way that's respectful uh, and equal and so forth? But then we also go to, oh, I'm coaching the kids on the weekend. Am I using language that's inclusive and not um, and not dismissing of women, you know, the old fashioned language about, oh, you kick like a girl. Do women have, do women and girls have access to this first sporting club and so forth? And then at home, whoever the adults are at home, are they providing healthy relationships? Are they seeing, are children seeing healthy and equal and respectful relationships? So it is actually true, you know, everyone has a role to play. But I think it's one of the beautiful things about this work. It's even if you personally feel like you're not, a perpetrator of violence or you're doing great things, actually we all have a role to play, whether you're a parent, whether you're the sports coach, whether you're the CEO or whether you're the Prime Minister. Paddy, ending violence against women has been a priority for Australian governments for the past, at least the past 15 years or so. And you already mentioned that we've had the national plan in place since uh, 2010 um, and we've seen four action plans. And I think it is such a positive thing that something like Our Watch actually came out of one of those action plans. You know, it, it demonstrates the progress that we are making despite the challenges that we still face. But I wonder if you could just talk us through, from your point of view, how things have changed since the adoption of that first national plan. Are we seeing the kinds of progress that you'd like us to be seeing? Well, yes and no. Uh, Yes, yes and no, I think is an answer there. The current national plan has been instrumental in deepening the Australian government's commitment to reducing violence against women and their children. And we're definitely starting to see early positive signs that Australia is building strong foundations for prevention work. We're also starting to see progress in shifts in some attitudes, such as a reduction in the proportion of Australians whose attitudes condone or accept violence against women, that first driver I was talking about, and a greater acceptance of some aspects of gender equality, such as attitudes towards women's full participation in the workforce. I think the other thing that's less easy to measure is that in, in my career, for example, say in, when I was the CEO of a regional women's health organisation 10 years ago and or f- eight years ago, when I would go and speak to boards or sporting organisations about gender equality or about their role in preventing violence against women, you know, I would see them looking at their watches and hoping that I'd, you know, disappear soon enough or they'd say that this really was now work, you know, that sort of thing, whereas now we are seeing so much more engagement in this work. Now, whether that's engagement with our watch and we are literally seeing organisations and sporting codes and media organisations reaching out to us to say, 
okay, we get it now. Can you help us implement? Okay, we understand that we've got a role to play, but can you help us do that first piece of work because it's really foreign to us? Uh, but we also have um, an increased understanding in the community, I think. You know, it's not in recent years things like a police, uh, after the terrible murder of Eurydice Dixon in Melbourne, the, the head police person said something like, you know, women should really shouldn't really should walk at home through the park at home on their, on their own at night. Now, police have been saying that for decades, but there was this huge backlash about that because community understanding and awareness is shifting. Uh, I think we're now, even when we started at Our Watch, Change the Story, we're just doing a version two of that. And in Change the Story, the original version, we really had to be mindful about using language about men's violence against women because people were not quite ready to hear that yet. And people were pretty keen to put you in the box of, you know, a lefty man-hating feminist if you talked about that. But actually, as people have understood the data more, as people are becoming more aware of the issue, they are ready to talk about men's role, about masculinity, about the role of rigid forms of masculinity. So I think in terms of interest, in terms of an understanding that we all have a role to play, I think there's a really huge shift. That's a really powerful and important uh, description, I think, of the progress that's been made in the last decade or so. And it probably brings us into discussing the events of this year. There's quite a lot to discuss this year. But the National Summit on Women's Safety was, of course, held just recently on the 6th and 7th of September. What was your overall impression of that, that National Summit? Look, I think the summit, and it's probably important to acknowledge that the summit really comes off the back of the amazing work earlier this year of actually young women, people like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos and so forth. And I think partly answering your previous question, the, the momentum around around their stand and their courage, and that wasn't just women responding, that was women and men and families and it was an amazing response from the Australian community. So the summit I think was a really important opportunity to bring the issue of violence against women and their children into the limelight and to keep it there. Um, there was a really broad range of panellists representing diverse and complex nature of men's violence against women. Now, we know that not all violence uh, is perpetrated by men against women, but it is still a predominant form, which is why we still mainly talk about preventing men's violence against women. I think the other thing was that it was an opportunity for experts and stakeholders to come together to develop short and term, um, short and long term solutions, uh, to push for advancing uh, the voices of victim survivors, you know, to build commitment to primary prevention activity. And uh, the outcome statement that was put together at the end of that um, summit will be really important as we move towards the development of a second national plan. Paddy, I think this is a, a perfect moment for us to to take a very short break and then to come back and to continue to look forward um, around how we we continue to address um, issues of violence against women, um, particularly as we move towards the next national plan. So, listeners, please don't go away. We will be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Paddy Kinnersley talking about preventing violence against women. Paddy, before the break, we talked about the National Plan for Ending Violence Against Women and Their Children and the fact that that plan is coming toward an end and that the development of a new plan is underway. What would you like to see? What should we see in that new plan? Yeah, there's uh, a million um, ways to answer that question and and, uh, because I often... um, our watch's work is in pre- in primary prevention, but I also have in the back of my head the work of our colleagues in response and their need for greater funding, uh, the conversations around uh, increased housing support, the uh, really important conversations about reforming the legal se- sector so that women have better access, you know, improving in, improving in, in policing, um, uh, a really strong increased focus on women who are facing multiple forms of discrimination such as women on temporary visas and multicultural women and women with disabilities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Uh, So I kind of um, always feel like I need to make sure I fly the flag for my colleagues in response and early intervention. From a prevention perspective, we we would really like to see us continuing to make progress in areas such as women's decision-making. We need to really focus on ongoing economic inequality uh, and the and certainly that uh, intersectional intersectional lens I spoke about. So there was a really strong focus through the summit on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women leading their own responses and having their own answers around preventing violence against women and responding to violence against women. So that will be really important in the next plan. We do need the next plan to again take a long term approach and be truly national. So we need all states and territories uh, buying in, but also being coordinated and so forth. And I think from our watch perspective, we've in the last, uh, in our life, we've in our short life, which is only eight years, there's been amazing momentum taking place in our community, in corporate Australia, in our universities, in our workplaces, in our sporting clubs, in our schools and in our homes. So we need to keep building on that. Your your listeners will absolutely know that prevention work is long-term and doesn't just run election cycle to election cycle. It needs long-term commitment. So we have done some amazing work at our watch, always in partnership. I really want to sort of focus on that, that it's never, you know, one organisation can never do it. It's always in partnership. Um, but we've done some amazing work in those settings I talked about, but we need to go further. We need to keep being funded to help other people do primary prevention it's one of those things where we can um, say we need people to understand what's driving violence against women. We need them to understand they've got a role to play. Then we need them to do something, to lead change in their organisation, to look at the way they're doing their relationships, to look at policies they're developing and so forth. So a big role for our watch is to keep supporting other people to apply the evidence into their life and do. Paddy, one of the issues that there's been considerable debate around in Australia of, of late is, is coercive control and how we address that. Um, I remember being at a a seminar with Evan Stark in the UK about 15 years ago where he was talking about the concept of coercive control and just how 
centrally connected it is uh, to violence. Can you talk us through what we mean when we talk about coercive control and how important it is we we address this issue? I think the conversations about coercive control in the last 12 to 18 months have been really very helpful and I think illuminating for the public, who many of whom still have that vision of violence against women being the physical violence. Uh, what we're The conversations we're having now about coercive control really help people locate violence against women in a much broader sphere about economic control or sexual control or the undermining of a woman's right to have friends or to, to um, choose you know, what work she does or doesn't do. And so that kind of, um, I think it's been really helpful for, for people to understand that it's not just the physical violence. Uh, now, the, it's, I think people, advocates and feminists in the women's sector have always known about coercive control. It hasn't had that term attached to it. But uh, the conversations we're having now really help take the movement forward, I think, or take the conversation forward because people are understanding it more and they're seeing it more. So I've certainly had conversations with uh, men, particularly older men actually, who have said, oh, no, violence doesn't happen in our community. But then when you start describing coercive control, they say things like, oh, okay, I've got a mate who only gives his wife, she's only allowed to spend $20 down the street or she's only allowed access to the car at certain times or actually I've heard him talk about her birth control or those types of things. And so people have a much stronger understanding of it. The conversation about uh, how coercive control is, um, whether it should be um, legislated again, you know, made uh, made a criminal activity is quite a tricky one and there's a really strong divide about that conversation. The, the One of the key things that people are worried, uh, experts in the sector are worried about is, does it already exist in, in the laws but isn't, hasn't been applied? Are there unintended consequences, particularly for some groups? So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, may be further disadvantaged by criminalising coercive control because of their relationship with um, the justice system and so forth. From a prevention perspective, we would say that the actions to prevent coercive control are the same as the ones we are currently working on. How do we change the underlying drivers? How do we promote and normalise gender equality? How do we make sure that women aren't being discriminated against advertedly or inadvertently? Um, how do workplaces make sure that women aren't always the ones who are economically in vulnerable positions by having part-time jobs and so forth? One of the things that we do, and this goes back to the previous question as well, there is so much that individuals can do and workplaces can do and the, and the settings that I've talked about, education, media and so forth. But it is there are important levers that only government can pull about things like superannuation or um, making sure that women are represented in um, in economic stimulus to get us out of COVID, for example. So there are um, levers that are really important for government to pull, or like putting a gendered lens across new policy to make sure it doesn't inadvertently restrict women or disadvantage women. So sorry, now I can talk for hours about things, so I'll stop talking and see what the next question is. <laughs> Paddy, I think the next question is is closely connected to this conversation and we wanted to ask you around consent. And, of course, consent is bound up with the treatment of women, with gender equality and with ending violence against women. How should we be discussing issues of consent with children and young people in particular but across the population? And are we doing it well enough? (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, it's a great question, and I think the easy answer to that is no, we're not doing it well enough. I was very privileged, along with quite a few people, to be on a Zoom call the other night led by Chanel Contos that had stakeholders from ministers and shadow ministers, uh, young people who had been victims of um, sexual assault and rape and so forth in their school settings and as young people, and it was it was both an, um, an enlightening and a confronting session. Uh, and as I'm sure your listeners will know, that there's been a review of curriculum in education settings around consent. So we do believe that um, the conversations around consent need to be had earlier uh, and in a more structured way. And one of the things that scares people is that they think that you're going to be talking about sex or sexuality to children or, or having inappropriate conversations. The evidence is really clear that conversations around consent need to be age and stage appropriate. So if you think about your kinder child, that could be as simple as actually you have to ask somebody if you want to hug them or you actually need, you don't actually have to give that person a hug if you don't want to. You know, some really fundamental things uh, that are not in any way about sex or, you know, intimate relationships. But then as children work through their school years and into university and into the workforce, that those conversations change and become age and stage appropriate. On this Zoom call the other night, there were literally (laughs) tens of young people and older people who were saying, no more bananas and condoms. Uh, we need a much deeper conversation. Around, <laughs> yeah, there was a fair bit of chuckling going on. A much deeper conversation around healthy relationships. Yes, about sexuality when it's appropriate. Yes, about um, sexual pleasure when appropriate. But essentially about healthy relationships and about autonomy in your own body and the need to talk to other people about their own bodies and so forth. So, our watch has developed um, a, a piece of work, uh, a, a program, if you like, called Respectful Relationships Education. Importantly, it takes a whole of school or a whole of institution model because I don't think it's appropriate that we say, well, we need to teach young people about healthy relationships, including consent, and then not model that ourselves, either in the staff room or in the playground or as adults. So this work needs to be, and it's a bit like our everyone has a role conversation, the, the school council, the principal, the teachers, what happens in the classroom, what happens in the playground, what happens in our relationship outside the school on sport at weekends and so forth. Um, and so, yes, it needs to be embedded in curriculum, age and stage appropriate through the curriculum, but it also needs to be embedded in a much bigger context about um, gendered violence, the ro- you know, the things that I've talked about, condoning of violence against women, who's got con- who's the stereotypes about who's in charge, you know, because young people are still demonstrating that they think once they go out with somebody, then the boy will be in control of money and and their phones and so forth. So um, definitely earlier, definitely in schools, definitely whole of schools, using the evidence, age and stage appropriate, but then continuing into the workforce. You know, the, the work of Commissioner Jenkins to develop the Respect at Work report, you know, showed us really confrontingly, if that's a word, that um, sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace is still rife uh, and we have a lot of work to do there too. So hopefully if we do more work earlier, then that won't be the case in 15 years, but we also have to do work in that space now as well and the Respect at Work recommendations will certainly help with that. Patty, it's really remarkable listening to you talking about the importance of putting gender across all sorts of elements of government and social decision-making. I think we see, I I keep hearing uh, these parallels with climate change and environmental action and I think that we can potentially learn lots by working alongside. Um, And I wanted to come to another issue around housing. 
Uh, the work of our watch has pointed to the relationship between violence against women and homelessness. What needs to happen around homelessness and housing policy to make women safer? I'm by no uh, stretcher housing expert, but, you know, conceptual theoretically that we, uh, we know that um, economic security is really important, you know, is a, is a protective factor, if you like, around violence against women because, and we're seeing this in COVID, women are staying in unsafe relationships because there's, they don't have safe housing to go to. Uh, I've got colleagues who are working in the um, frontline sector who talk about putting women in motels and then them choosing to go back to unsafe, go back to the unsafe environment because there really isn't the housing that's affordable. Because this is where this is where the circle comes together. If women don't have economic security, you know they're in part-time work, they've been impacted by COVID, they're in lower-paid roles, they're less likely to be able to secure accommodation, less likely to be able to secure accommodation that's affordable. Then they choose to stay in relationships that are unsafe. Um, and that's not a, there's no value statement in that because actually we're forcing women into these decisions, particularly if they're also caring for children. So housing policy really needs to take a gendered lens and to understand the impact of homelessness and insecure housing on the ability of women to make decisions about their own safety and freedom. Uh, because for me, it's not good enough for us to aspire actually for women to be free from violence. We actually need to aspire to a community where people can thrive, all women. Um, and we know that the disproportionate rates of women, you know, violence against women with disabilities or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And so the um, housing policy needs to not sit over there as bricks and mortar, but be brought into the conversations about how it impacts with all of these other human related policies. Hattie, I think that's such a critical point of seeing the linkages between these issues because so often policy issues that are seen as sitting in different departments or under different the responsibility of different ministers are siloed off from one another. And so, you know, making those connections is just so fundamentally important in, in dealing with these really complex topics um, and issues like violence. But I, I did want to ask you, as we kind of look to the next national plan as this one uh, draws to its end. And to ask you where children fit within all of this, the current national plan has sought to address violence against women and their children. From your point of view, how successful have we been in protecting children? And what would you like to see about children in that next national plan? Great question. And uh, there are plenty of people who are asking the same question. Uh, so, one of the first things I'm on the on a, I'm on an NPAG for the, this national plan, and and there are people from all sorts of areas of expertise across the country who are on the plan on, on that NPAG, and one of the first things we asked our colleagues in Office for Women and DSS and even the Prime Minister's office was to say, can you please do a fancy Venn diagram that brings together all of the key strategies? So whether that's housing or um, the framework for to protect Australia's children, I haven't quite got that title right, mental health, drug and alcohol. So the range of oh, the closing the gap, the range of strategies that do um, cross over each other. Now, the plans around protecting Australia's children is a really important one and there is clear crossover with the plan to prevent violence against women. Uh, now, there's two elements to this. One is we know that most children who are experiencing violence are in the care of women and um, the women who are experiencing violence, then the, the children are, are experiencing that as well, either witnessing or, you know, having to be protected and so forth. Uh, so w 
so our work to prevent violence against women, gendered violence against women, is vital in order to help children be safer as well. However, we, there's a really strong message that came through um, the, the summit and appears in the outcome statement about the need for a specific focus on children in their own right, children having their own voices, protecting children against violence, uh, not just as the children of women who are experiencing violence but as children in their own right. So um, the actual statement that came from the, the Sentence in the outcome statement says, you know, ensure children and young people are acknowledged as victims and survivors of violence in their own right with serious lifelong negative consequences and economic costs. So that's a really positive step and that will help in the framing of the second national plan, uh, albeit in relationship to the Australia's uh, framework for the protection of children. And we are also in the process of developing the successor plan for that national framework for protecting Australia's children. So there is a really important opportunity to bring those things together. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And uh, Commissioner um, Anne Hollands, the Commissioner for Children, uh, has been really integral in this process as well. So it's great to have her voice and the voices of other experts in this conversation. Patty, we usually end these discussions by asking you about the priority piece of advice that you have for policymakers. And we would regard that as quite a difficult task, but particularly coming out of that national summit and moving toward the next national plan, what's your favourite piece of advice that you'd give to government? That's, that is a big question. Um, I do think that take, you know, applying a gendered lens across policy uh, is really important. Uh, I do think listening to the voices of victims and victim survivors and to experts uh, is is so important. And this this I don't mean this to sound uh, too judgy or preachy, but it actually it is important for people to have to spend some time understanding this issue for themselves. Because like anything else, when you have when you have a deeper understanding of um, how gender inequality plays out in your own life or what you deeply feel about it yourself, and Acknowledging that we're all brought up in the same soup and you don't even realise your limitation, you know, the unconscious bias piece. But I do think if people do some work to educate themselves on this, then that just illuminates their own work in a different way. So I'm always challenging people to spend some time reflecting. Don't spend too long because you've got work to do, but spend some time reflecting so that you can apply that knowledge into your work. And, and Patty, as we, we wrap up today, we, we we usually finish with that one piece of advice, but I, I think both Anna Greta and I kind of wanted to, to end this conversation on a note of hope for the future. And so, Patty, can you just talk us through what does this country look like without the scourge of violence against women and their children? What would this place look like if we could end this violence? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I actually feel like the work around prevention of violence against women is the work of hope. I often say our watch has the hope piece with full respect to people who are, you know, without meaning to diminish the, what's happening for women and children and victims, survivors and so forth. But we have the hope piece because every one of us can apply some change. Every one of us can do something little to to drive change in this in terms of making sure we're valuing um, women and girls. So the future without violence against women, without gender inequality, is one where both women and men are better off. It's where women are not just free from violence but free to thrive, where we get to see the best of women. I There's not many times I get um, feel like I'd like to curl up and cry, but when I think about the, the 
talent that we've missed in women and girls because the opportunity hasn't been there. And you only have to see that watching something as simple as the AFLW. These young women thriving and flourishing and expressing themselves in a physical way, and there's lots of other ways, is simply because we allowed the structures uh, and, and we moved in our brains for them to be able to do that. So the hope piece for me is um, really strong and what's certainly what keeps me motivated and the exciting thing is that all of us can do something and it doesn't need to be huge. What an extraordinary place to leave today's conversation, Patty Kinsley. It's just been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Um, I think you've done an amazing job of outlining the challenges that we've faced and the way forward. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Anna Greta, that was an amazing conversation with Paddy and such an important conversation. And I think these are the conversations that we have to have, difficult as they often are, to to talk about and to confront. Um, I, I kept thinking as, as I was listening to Paddy as well, back to the conversation we had with Karen and Tim last week um, about children and where children are featured within these conversations about around COVID and the absence of children's voices and what we heard today from Paddy about the way in which the, the current national plan has focused on protecting women and their children but perhaps hasn't had children, and I won't use the words at the centre, but hasn't had children positioned so that they are able to share their stories and be at the centre of these decision decisions that are made. So I think there's such a powerful connection between last week's podcast and the conversation today with Paddy. Absolutely. I thought she did uh, such a great job of helping us to appreciate the fact that gender issues come up in all of our policy approaches across the whole of government. Um, and to me, this stuff is confronting. It can be difficult and particularly uh, recognising the extraordinarily ingrained nature of violence against women in our community. But she also gave us such extraordinary hope and, and I thought an easily, an easily accessible roadmap as to how we can achieve change. It, it ties in beautifully, as you said, with the podcast we had last week talking about the, putting children at the centre. Um, and it really it, it ties back to the conversations we've had around economics, around how we measure what matters in our society and what sort of choices we can make about how to do things differently moving forward. So just an, an inspiring and uh, extraordinary conversation and one I'll certainly come back to over the, the years to come. Yeah, and the other thing that really struck me in listening to Paddy talking is how inclusive she is when she explains what we need to do and who needs to be involved. And the ability that she has to do that in a way that invites everyone into this conversation and invites everyone to change the way we think and behave and to be focused on the need to stop hurting people around us, to ensure that people around us are safe and can live their lives, you know, to use Amartya Sen's terms, to, can live their lives in a way that they have reason to value and can fulfil that potential that Paddy was talking about. You know, violence is just soul-destroying and destroying to societies. But she gave us a way forward and that was really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Uh, we really enjoy uh, being able to speak to people and to go through these sorts of ideas. It's such a privilege. We also love to hear feedback, so please reach out to us uh, through any platform. We're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. We have a Facebook group called Policy Forum Pod, and we have some great conversations on that site. 
Uh, we'd love you to subscribe to the podcast regularly and to leave us a review on whichever platform you pod with. We do read them and take their feedback seriously. Uh, next week, we'll be back again with another episode. But for the moment, it's bye-bye from me, Anagreta Hunter. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.